Well, this morning as we continue our study in the book of James, we're going to look at a passage in James 1 that warns us against self-deception, self-deception. And just so you know, my presupposition as I teach this morning is that every single one of us, myself included, deceive ourselves in various ways, either a few ways or in many ways. I don't necessarily think it's conscious. It's not intentional. I doubt many of us get up in the morning and say, hey, it's Sunday. What's my strategy for getting through today? Well, I think I'll tell myself some lies, some things I I know are not true, but I'm going to tell myself these things. I'm going to deceive myself so that I'll be able to cope with the stresses of this day. I don't think we really do that. Most of us aren't aware of our self-deception. But the passage we're looking at today tells us that we are responsible for addressing self-deception when it's revealed. When I say responsible, that means we're able to respond. By God's grace, we can look at our self-deception. We can, by His grace, turn from it, believe the truth, and live differently. And so uh, that's actually a mark of spiritual maturity. A spiritually mature person is not a person who has zero self-deception. That does not happen in this life. But a spiritually mature person is a person who recognizes self-deception, is eager to find out where it exists, and then by God's grace turns from it and walks in truth. And so our passage today is James 1 verses 19 through 27. And James warns against self-deception in relation to three specific issues. First, anger. Second, in relation to God's word. And third, in relation to what constitutes God-honoring religion, or we would say God-honoring spirituality. And the first issue, anger, it's implicit that he's talking about second self-deception. But in the last two, it's explicit. He says, do not deceive yourselves. Don't delude yourselves when it comes to these issues. And so we're going to see that James doesn't merely expose these areas of self-deception. This is one of the things I appreciate about James and Scripture in general. He also gives us a path forward. He gives us an alternative. Uh, he, He tells us, here's something specific that you can do to convince your heart that there's a better way. And so let's dive in. First of all, James 1, verses 19 through 21, uh, self-deception concerning anger. And James says, I'm writing you something that you already know, or some translations suggest something you need to know. But we read this in verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And so these three commands are for everyone. He says, not just a few people in the church need to understand every person. If you're going to be a mature church, everyone needs to get it. These three things. First of all, he says, be quick to hear. And if you're quick to hear, uh, you're not passive. You're not lazy. It's like you lean in. Since Scripture uses the expression, you incline your ear, you lean in, you are eager to understand what the other person or what God is trying to say to you. And so you take responsibility. You say, I want to get this. I'm eager to to learn what you're communicating. And that's the settled habit of a teachable person. That's how you know if somebody's really teachable. They want to understand it. They're eager to hear. Second, he says, be slow to speak. And whereas we're supposed to be 
eager to hear, we're supposed to pause before we speak. We do speak. We're supposed to speak the truth. We speak the truth in love. So we do speak. But we don't just speak the first thing that pops into our head because often it's not kind, it's not true, and it doesn't meet the need of the moment. And so we are slow to speak. And James emphasizes how, how, we, how easily we can sin with our tongues. Uh, I love what Elizabeth Elliot said years ago. She said, we're supposed to taste our words before we speak them. And if it doesn't taste good to you, it's probably not going to taste good to those who hear it. In verse 26, we'll see James says, the person who does not bridle his or her tongue, that person's religion is worthless. We'll see in a, a few weeks, the first 12 verses of James 3 explain how destructive our words can be. Therefore, be quick to hear, but be slow to speak. Third, be slow to anger. Slow to anger. And so it suggests that anger is not always a sin. There is such a thing called righteous anger or righteous indignation, where our anger mirrors the anger of God. We're told at least a couple of times that Jesus was angry. And so it, there, there are times when, when we uh, experience righteous anger, but just as God, we're told over and over again, God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. We too are to be slow to anger. And uh, the reason James gives in verse 20 is this, and this is how we, we can spot self-deception. If we don't understand this, we're deceiving ourselves. He says, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. While there are times when we imitate God by being angry about something that angers him, the dominant overwhelming emphasis in scripture about human anger is that human anger is almost always sinful, harmful, pretty much the exact opposite of what God desires. Uh, our anger does not accomplish God's righteousness, God's justice. It does not produce what God wants to produce in the life of the person who's angry and in the life of the person who experiences our anger. Okay? And so think about a simple, uh, simple example. Say someone has sinned against you, uh, something they've said, something they've done. Uh, what is the will of God for that person? I mean, what does God really want? What's his deepest desire for that person? Well, his deepest desire is that that person would be sorry for sinning, right? That that person would come to you and apologize and even maybe even ask for forgiveness and that that person would repent, would turn from that sin and choose a different way forward in the future. I mean, that's the will of God. If you come to that person humbly and you come to that person in compassion and in vulnerability, maybe even with tears in your eyes, perhaps that person will respond that way, will, will, will respond the way God desires. But if you come at that person full on with an expression of anger, very unlikely any of that's going to happen. What's likely is that person will say, forget you. I'm not going to apologize. You just sinned against me. You're the one that ought to be apologizing to me, okay? And so our anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. It doesn't produce in, in people's lives what God desires. And so uh, 
uh, anger is complex, uh, and we deceive ourselves about anger in a number of different ways. But James seems to be zeroing in on a type of self-deception that says, because my anger is justified, uh, because my anger is justified, I'm free to express it however I want. And if you have a problem with my anger, deal with it, okay? So he said, that's self-deception. Like Jesus, we should care about the impact of our anger. Like Jesus, we should be committed to the will of God, doing the will of God, seeing the will of God done in the world around us. And so uh, here in verse 20, James reminds us our deepest commitment is to God's purposes. It does not accomplish God's purposes, therefore we need to do, ang- uh, do differently. Now, verse 21 tells us how we can become people who are quick to, sp- quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Verse 21 starts with the word, therefore. And you probably heard preachers say, when you see the word, therefore, figure out what it's there for, okay? What's he saying? Well, therefore, here's the point. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And so here he's describing a lifestyle of repentance, turning from what God, uh, what's displeasing to God and turning toward what pleases God. And so first, just like you might take off clothes that are filthy and smelly and put them aside, the word was used for that. In the same way, we put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, anything that's incompatible with our life in Christ. And of course, this would include the vast majority of our anger. And so I think about anger this way. I think like if if your emotions are a plated dinner, and so your anger might be a a sprig of parsley on the side. It might be a garnish, but it's not supposed to be the entree, okay? And so anger should be a minor, minor thing in our lives. We put it aside. Second, in humility, receive the word implanted. Instead of being arrogant, know-it-all, self-willed, we humble ourselves And a core aspect of humility is being teachable. And the word implanted is a reference to God's word that has taken resonance within us. God's word that he has put within us. And that's a new new covenant promise. God says, when you, you put your faith in Jesus, I write my word on your heart. It's not an external thing, some external regular. No, internally, I'm going to write it on your heart so that internally you have this desire to know it and to obey it. And the challenge here is to humbly receive that word, allow it to, allowing God to expose our self-deception and allowing, us to, allowing him to teach us what's true. And in that way, the word saves our souls. It could be translated, saves our lives. Not in an ultimate sense. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But we experience our salvation when we, we let God write his word on our hearts and we live it out. And so think, for example, of how you might receive uh, a scripture you've heard probably many, many times, most of you. 1 Corinthians 13, it's the famous description of love. And one of the things we're told about love is that love is not provoked, okay? Love is not provoked. What I tend to, to reason, what I tend to think when I get provoked, yes, it's true, shocking, but it's true. When I get provoked, I tend to think, that person made me angry. You made me angry. It's your fault that I'm provoked. But if I receive what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, I'll say, wait a minute. 
Love is not provoked. So if I'm provoked, maybe I don't love the way I should. Maybe I have a deficiency in love. And so when I'm provoked by what someone says, what someone does, okay, God, teach me. I want to humbly receive this. Where's my anger coming from? And there could be a dozen different places where anger comes from. Maybe you've been sinned against. Maybe you've just got wrong thinking since you were a kid. All sorts of, where does my anger come from? And God, what's the alternative? How can I be patient and kind instead of provoked? God, could you teach me how to, how to put aside anger, be slow to anger like you are? And so receiving the word of God and plan it, letting God write it on my heart, it will save my soul from all sorts of self-deception. It will teach me how to be more committed to the will of God. And so first he addresses the issue of anger. Having mentioned the word implanted, he goes on to discuss self-deception concerning God's word in verses 22 through 25. Notice in 22 how he flags this issue. He says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So again, he's warning against self-deception, deluding ourselves. Now, in that day, people didn't have their own copy of the the Hebrew Scripture, right? Uh, And James is one of the first books in the New Testament to to be written. So even the other books in in our New Testament were not in circulation. So the main way they got the Scripture was through hearing it. They would show up into worship, and the Scripture would be read publicly, and it would be taught. And so hearing, being a hearer of the Word is, is essential. If you're going to receive it, you have to hear it. But James is warning against being merely hearers or hearers only. Such persons, he says, delude themselves by thinking that merely hearing is enough. And given the availability of Scripture in our day and in this culture, James would be warning us against merely reading a passage from the Bible or merely going to church and hearing a sermon and thinking, I'm good. I just heard God's word. I'm good for the week. Or watching podcasts or listening to, listening to podcasts or reading books about Scripture. Uh, again, hearing and reading the word is essential. It's good, but we delude ourselves if we think hearing is enough. We're deceived unless we become people who actually do the word. We actually put it into practice. And James gives an analogy in verses 23 and 24 to explain himself. And uh, you wonder where James got this. You know, James was Jesus' little brother, right? <laughs> Half-brother. I wonder if Jesus just kind of said this kind of stuff growing up. or We don't really know. But this is fascinating. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. The NIV translates that last line, he immediately forgets what he looks like. Can you imagine forgetting what you look like? I mean, we we have modern mirrors that are made out of glass and they've got silver or aluminum on the back, so we get this crystal clear image of ourselves. And mirrors are everywhere. And most of us have seen hundreds and thousands of pictures of ourselves. And so the idea that we would forget what our face looks like? How does that happen? Well, in that day, mirrors are rather uncommon. Uh, 
Looking at yourself, your face in a mirror wasn't an everyday occurrence. And mirrors were basically polished metal. They were polished metal. So when you looked at it, it was a pretty indistinct picture. And so uh, in that day, uh, you know, you didn't have just, and nobody had seen a photograph of themselves, right? You knew what the back of your hand looks like, but your face, you know, that's where your eyes are. You don't see your face. And so it's possible, yeah, you look at it, you walk away, you forgot what you look like. I mean, literally, you have forgotten what your face looks like. That person is analogous to the person who merely hears the word but doesn't put it into practice. The point is, is that the influence is superficial and temporary. It's superficial and temporary, which is the opposite of what God wants. He wants the effect of the word to be substantive and lasting, substantive and lasting. In verse 25, James tells us how that can be the case, how we can solve this self-deception. He says, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And so in contrast with looking in a mirror and quickly forgetting what you look like, James describes a person who does three things in relation to the word. Number one, he looks intently at the word. In other words, with intense interest, with great intention. Again, you're just like you're quick to hear, you're quick to see what the word says. And that's reflected in many scriptures. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who meditates day and night. It's not just an occasional thing, but all day long you're mulling over the word. And James calls the word the perfect law and the law of liberty. And so it's the perfect law because, and the word law is just equivalent to the Hebrew word Torah or teaching. And so it's a perfect teaching. And in the new covenant, Christ has brought the, the whole, all of scripture to perfection. He's brought it to its fulfillment. And so we have, the, we have this, this, fulfill, this, this fulfillment Uh, fulfilled teaching that we can soak in. It's called the law of liberty or the law of freedom because this teaching actually gives us freedom, freedom from sin, freedom to do the will of God. And so this person looks intently at that word. Second, this person abides by it in the sense of continuing with it. So you don't hear it, got it, and then move on to something else. You remain in the word. You continue to mull it over and think about its impact and its relevance in every area of your life. And then third, this person becomes an effectual doer. This person actually puts it into practice. This person actually practices the word and therefore experiences the freedom available through the law of liberty. And so, James, this is a hard thing to hear, perhaps, but James says we delude ourselves if we don't do all three of those things. Unless we look intently, abide in it, and become an effectual doer. We delude ourselves if we think, I'm mature, I'm, a, I'm, I'm right with God, everything is good in my life because I'm growing, I, I know the contents of the Bible, I go to church, I read the Bible. Unless we put it into practice, he says, you're actually deceiving, you're actually deluding yourself. Why? Because solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, 
have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That's Hebrews 5.14. Maturity is a result of putting it into practice. Just like an athlete, just like a musician, just like in any discipline, you have to practice something before you become mature in that, in that discipline. And so unless we remain in the Word and become doers, we're deceiving ourselves spiritually. And his last comment is that this man will be blessed in what he does. And in the Bible, uh, God's blessing is God's favor. He rains down his favor on us. He gives us help. He gives us grace. He gives us his presence in ways that are healing and nourishing. So an example, a couple weeks ago, uh, Brian taught from the first eight verses in, in James 1 about how when we experience trials, hard things in our lives, we do what? We should consider it all joy because God uses those trials to refine us and give us, build perseverance in our lives. Therefore, if we lack wisdom in those trials, what are we supposed to do? Ask of God because he gives generously without reproach. He's not stingy. He's not reluctant. He gives generously and without reproach. And so many of you were here two weeks ago, right? Unless you were asleep, you were a hearer of that word, right? You heard that teaching, okay? The question is, you've experienced trials in the last two weeks, right? Just scan it very briefly like, yeah, experience some hard things. Here's the question. When you experienced those trials, did you actually consider it joy, consider what God might be doing in your life, and did you actually ask for wisdom? Did you ask God for wisdom? Say, God, I'm dying down here. I'm clueless. I don't know what to do in this situation. But you give good gifts, and you give it generously, so I'm asking you to give me this wisdom. And I'm asking in faith, I believe you're good, and I believe you want to give it to me. Did you ask that way? In other words, did you do? Did you put into practice that word? If so, you, you probably experienced the blessing of God. If not, and again, this is not for condemnation, but if not, there's this, a degree of deception going on because you're not, you're a hearer only, but not a doer. For me, the last couple of weeks have been a mixed bag, honestly. There have been times when I asked for wisdom and I was just amazed. Okay, looking back, thank you, God. You, 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 you gave me, allowed me to navigate that in ways I didn't think were even possible. Other times I just bumbled through and did my best, okay? And so when we talk about doing the Word, we're not really talking about adding a bunch of things to our to-do list. We're talking about living our lives, our normal responsibilities, our normal relationships, implementing what the Word teaches. There's blessing there. Third thing, James talks about self-deception concerning God-honoring religion in verses 26 and 27. Uh, in verse 26, James says that the failure to control our speech reveals something rather sobering about our faith. He says this, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. worthless. And so James has us imagine, he says, imagine a person that says, uh, I consider myself to be religious. And to our ears, religious sounds kind of self-righteous. So in our day, somebody might say, uh, I consider myself to be a spiritual person, okay? And, and this person might go on to say, uh, I follow this 
religion or that religion, or I don't really, uh, I don't really follow any organized religion, but I'm a, a spiritual person because I have principles and I live by it and it's very important to me. He says, imagine a person that says that. I consider myself to be religious, spiritual, and yet this person does not bridle their tongue. And there's many scriptures that suggest that just like you would put a bridle on a horse so that you can control where the horse goes, in the same way, we really need to bridle our tongues so that we don't just say anything that, come, that comes to our minds. James says that that person deceives his own heart and that that man's religion is worthless. He says, you deceive your heart if you think that you can simultaneously be spiritually acceptable to God, thriving with God, and not bridle your tongue. Those two things are incompatible. Those two things do not exist, coexist. Uh, In in chapter 3, James will explain that an untamed tongue is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. If a person's speech is poison and deadly evil, that person's religion James says, is worthless in the sense of vain. It doesn't mean the person is worthless. It doesn't mean they have no relationship with God. But the fruit of it, it's not, it's not uh, worth something. It doesn't amount to anything. Devotion to God should make a person an asset to the well-being of other people, not a liability. And in verse 27, James describes the type of fruit you should see in the life of a person whose religion is worth something. And what he says here, it's not a a comprehensive statement. He doesn't say anything about believing in the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, He's talking here mainly about these are some, a couple of core essential aspects of of fruitfulness that manifests itself in the lives of those who have God-honoring spirituality. He mentions compassion toward others as well as personal holiness. And so verse 27 says this, a pure and undefiled religion, no, true spirituality in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so orphans and widows represent the, the overlooked, the vulnerable, the, the relatively helpless in that society. And in the Old Testament, we're told God is a father to the fatherless. He's a judge for the widows. And so God expects his people to have the same concerns that he has. And so he doesn't say merely that pure and undefiled religion is caring about orphans and widows. What does he say? It involves visiting orphans and widows in their distress. So you're actually a doer of the word. You're actually helping alleviate the distress of people in tangible ways. And so it it illustrates being a doer that we've seen already, and it foreshadows his discussion in chapter 2 about living faith actually producing works. And so the question, it would be good here, as you go through your week, as you go through your days and your weeks, where do you encounter distressed people in our world, in, in our culture? Uh, I thought about this quite a bit this week, and, and my conclusion is that many of you serve distressed people in your work. By the work that you do, you serve people who are in all sorts of distress. And many of you just very naturally in your neighborhoods, in the church, and uh, in the community, you help 
people who are in distress. Those of you who are, are involved in the recovery ministries here at Faith, man, what a powerful way to help people in the midst of their distress. Uh, one thing, and, and many of you volunteer in organize, organizations that help alleviate distress. We have this long list of organizations in our town whose sole purpose, their mission, is to help people in their distress. About a decade ago, I realized that I just don't come across a lot of people that are in distress. And so through a series of events, I went down and volunteered. I went down and became a big with big brothers and big sisters. And I'm like, oh my, if you become a big, you just become an MVP in the life of a kid who is probably pretty distressed, okay? And so there are options out there if, if you want to be a doer of this word. And so I would encourage you, think about your life this week. Just notice, where do I encounter distressed people? It's a, it's a core aspect of God-honoring religion. James also mentions keeping oneself unstained by the world. And there's many ways that we need to, to avoid being stained by the world. But it may, may be, I think it's likely, he still has in mind uh, not uh, uh, he still has in mind bridling the tongue. The, the word he uses for unstained, he uses the same root word in 3.6 when he says that the tongue defiles or the tongue stains the entire body. This is likely saying that God-honoring religion is one uh, where we don't allow the world to dictate how we speak. We've got a different set of priorities, a different set of objectives for our words. And so again, James gives us ways to avoid self-deception, uh, ways in our religion, our spirituality. And so notice, pay attention how you speak and whether your heart goes out in tangible, concrete ways to the distressed in your life. And so, well, I feel like I need to exhale. That was, that was a lot, okay? Just giving you, you just heard a lot. And so how do you go from being hearers of all of this to being doers? Well, what I would urge upon you, I would plead with you, is to engage this passage, engage the things you have heard with prayer. Prayerfully come before God and say, God, would you show me my self-deception? Would you allow me to see it so that I might turn from it, so that I might acknowledge it, turn from it, and so that I might do differently? You just take this passage, make it a topic of prayer. By the way, that's what we're going to do tonight. We have a prayer night at 5.30 down in the venue. We're going to practice this ancient practice of Lexio Divina where we read the word and we contemplate it. We sit quietly with it. We think about it and invite God to speak to us and, and point out things in our lives we need to see. And then we'll have some time where we pray in, in small groups, pray for one another, pray with one another in these areas of self-deception. And so, Father, we bring ourselves before you, and we admit that, that we have many blind spots, and we deceive ourselves in ways that we don't begin to understand. Um, but, God, we, we believe that you're for us. We believe that you want us to see what's true. You want us to live in, in light of reality. You don't want us to live in a make-believe world that really ends up in, in tragedy and, and all sorts of turmoil and pain. God, we believe you want to lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake. And so, God, this week we pray that we would be, be able to engage this issue of self-deception, anger, 
the Word of God and God-honoring religion. We pray, God, you'd lead us, show us a path forward, give us the courage, the grace to uh, move in ways that are healthy, ways that align with reality. We pray we'd encourage one another in these things. We want to experience your blessing. We want to experience everything that Jesus secured by his death, resurrection, and enthronement. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.